want to make your way and find a seat, and then hopefully you all have one of the handouts. If not, they're on the music stands by the doors to the office hallway and in the back there. Make sure you grab one of those. So we talk about two different attributes tonight. Now, as we jump into this, remember there's two big categories of the attributes of God. There's the incommunicable attributes, right? Those are the ones that God does not share with us that are unique to him. And there's the communicable attributes of God, those attributes that he shares with us in part. Now, tonight and next week, we're going to look at two attributes each week. And these are closely related each time. And so tonight we're going to look at one that's incommunicable and one that's communicable because they go together. You'll see there on the front of your handout, we're looking at God is omniscient. We'll explore this in a minute. It means God is all-knowing. And that is very incommunicable. I am not all-knowing. I put a pizza in the oven today, and two minutes later forgot I was supposed to go take it out. Right? You know, it's like we forget stuff so quickly. There's so much we don't know. God is all-knowing. That's incommunicable. And then there, we also going to look tonight at God is wise. This is a communicable attribute because God calls us to pursue wisdom, and we can grow in wisdom. So we're, these are closely linked. Some people separate them. Some join them together. We will treat them together tonight and that. But realize one is incommunicable and one is communicable. To help us get started with it, you see there's Psalm 139. I want to start us with this scripture tonight. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern, you know my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. Before we even speak, God already knows what we're going to say. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And just notice right there, friends, on Psalm 130, notice again that as we've seen this before, the connection between the attributes of God and hope. God knows everything. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. And where does the psalmist go with that? You hem me in. Your hand is upon me. These attributes are not just intellectual. These attributes bring hope to our daily lives. And then Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And the answer is implied there, no one, right? Who has been his counselor? No one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, as we think about all these attributes, I want you to see what A.W. Pink says here. He says, each of his, each of God's glorious attributes should render him honorable in our esteem. Because that's what we want to happen. As we study these attributes, we want to see God for who he is. We want to worship God for who he is. Pink goes on, the apprehension of his omniscience ought to bow us in adoration before him. And that's our hope and prayer in this, is that we would honor God. We see him for who he is, and it would lead us to worship him. He says, yet how little do we meditate upon this divine perfection? I feel like that's kind of a broken record for us, this common theme that how often we do not stop to think about these things that blow our mind because they're just so different than we are. So let's jump into that tonight and let's think about these attributes of God. Let's start with God is omniscient. So turn to page two there. Omniscient is just a big word, but you know the root words, omni, all, science, knowledge, right? All knowledge is simply what that means. But as we try to define it, it gets hard. Now, before we define it, think about what we've been seeing so many of these attributes have been, the theme has been God has no limits, right? God is omnipresent. He's not limited, you know, by being at one location. God is eternal. He's not limited by time. Omnipresence is another no limitation attribute. It shows us that God is not limited in his knowledge. So how do we explain that? Timothy George, who used to be up at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, says his comprehensive knowledge of all that was, is, and ever shall be. There's a lot of his, his comprehensive knowledge. Notice that's past tense. He knows everything that's happened. 
Everything happening now and everything that will be future tense. He knows everything, and we saw this with his eternality. He sees it all equally vividly. A.W. Pink elaborates some more. He knows everything, now to blow our minds, he knows everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. Basically, God knows everything about every creature in his whole universe. Herman Bavink says it this way, God knows all things in and of and by himself. For that reason, his knowledge is undivided, simple, unchangeable, eternal. He knows all things instantaneously, simultaneously from eternity. All things are eternally present to his mind's eyes. Now, do you notice a struggle in trying to use our language to describe God in this? That God is not limited in any way, and he eternally, simultaneously sees everything. And so it seems like our words struggle to even be able to describe that. Wayne Grudem, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And notice that he fully knows himself. That's going to be important. We're going to explore that in just a minute. But let's just try to simplify that to our own definition. Here's my very simple definition. God fully knows everything all the time. If you want to kind of boil all that down to one statement, I think that's the definition of God's omniscient. God fully knows everything all of the time. Now, as we think about this, like the other attributes, What's important to remember, these are revealed attributes. We're not having to reason these. We're not having to deduce these from other things. God has told us very clearly that this is who he is. He showed it to us in Scripture. So, for example, Job 37. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? And don't miss this, friends. We quote Job almost every week. Job is an amazing book that shows us the attributes of God. It's not what we normally think to run to, but there's so much of God's attributes in Job. Or Psalm 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We can't even find human words, human measurements to describe how great his knowledge is. It's beyond any measure that we have. <clears throat> or Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So God sees what happens in every place, which concludes there with Matthew 6, 4, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's nothing that escapes God's notice. He knows everything, even if other people don't know. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And then 1 John chapter 3, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows, and here's that word again, he knows everything. So God has revealed to us throughout Old and New Testament that he is omniscient. He has, knowledge, he has knowledge of all things, past, present, future, knowledge of things in secret, knowledge of the heart, knowledge of the mind. He knows everything. Now, two clarifications as we think about this before we go on. First of all, God does not know in the way that we know. Now, this is really important. God does not know the way we know. How do we know something? We use our faculties, right? We think about it. So we observe, we contemplate, we count, we measure, we discuss, we research, and we come to conclusions. Our knowledge is a process, right? We're in process of exploration, discovery. That's how we know things. So you see there's a picture of my kid's sandbox. We built this during COVID or put this together during COVID years ago. Now, if I wanted to know how many grains of sand are in that sandbox, there's only two ways I can figure that out. Either I can spend the next few weeks of my life counting every grain one at a time, right? I can't tell you how many grains of sand are there. I don't know. Now, I can know that, but it would take a process of me counting every grain. Or I could calculate the area of a small part of that count them and then multiply by the bigger area and come to a conclusion 
based on, based on mathematics there. That's how we learn to know things. That's not how God knows things. God just knows. So if I ask God how many grains of sand are in my kid's sandbox, he wouldn't have to quick do an eternal scan of it. He wouldn't have to send angels to count it for me. He would just instantaneously know how many grains of sand are in that sandbox. And he would know how many were in there three years ago when it got built. He'll, he already knows how many are going to be in there three years from now. Like he just knows as part of his being. He doesn't know like we know. He doesn't have to count. He just knows everything. So turn the page. James Boyce, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, said it so well. There is in him nothing corresponding to observation, comparison, generalization, deduction, process of reasoning by which we pass from one step to another or the contemplation or conjecture of suppositions or theories by which we account for facts. His knowledge is his essence. His knowledge is his nature knowing. It is not something acquired, but something belonging to that nature itself and identical with it. So if you're struggling to sleep tonight, you can ponder that his knowledge is his essence. God just knows. He doesn't have to count. He doesn't have to send angels to figure things out. He just knows everything fully all the time, including how many hairs are on our head and how many grands are saying or down along the Gulf Shores beaches, how many ticks are in the trees of North Alabama and the mountains. I mean, he just knows it all instantaneously all the time. He doesn't have to deduce things the way we do. Because of that number two in the clarifications here, God's knowledge can never increase. We've already said God is eternal, and he sees all time equally vividly. Remember, he's outside of time, so he sees things all equally vividly. So God does not learn things. Now, there's some bad heresies going around today about God being in process and God learning, and that's just completely contradictory to Scripture. God is not in process. God does not learn. His knowledge never increases. He fully knew everything before he even made the world. He, knew, he knows all things equally vividly. A.W. Tozer says, well, God in one effortless act knows instantly not a little at a time, but instantly and perfectly, all things that can be known. That's why I say that God cannot learn. So God knows fully everything all the time. Now, that makes our brains hurt. So let's ask the question, what then does God know? Now, there's what does everything include? Now, we start talking everything. Again, our brains start to spin on this. So let's try to break down some things. This is not exhaustive, but this might help us think about the great vastness of God's knowledge. So what is included in the everything that God knows? And as you look at these, remember, this is all incommunicable because this is so different than us. Number one, let's start here. God fully knows himself. God fully knows himself. And just think about the wonders of that for just a minute. God is infinite, eternal spirit. He's immense, and he knows everything about himself. We've talked about for all eternity, we're going to still be learning about God. We're a trillion years from now, we're not going to be like, yeah, I'm kind of bored of God. I figured everything about him. A trillion years from now, we're still going to be learning more of the wonders of the depths of God's nature and his character. But God fully knows all that about himself that will take us all eternity to learn. I love how 1 Corinthians describes it. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything. And notice this phrase, even the depths of God. I mean, God himself is so vast, the depths of God here. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And this just reminds us how much we are dependent on God's revelation. That unless God reveals himself to us, we'll never begin to understand even the beginnings of the depths of who God is. So first of all, God fully knows himself. Number two, God fully knows every aspect of his Creation Again, he's omnipresent, so he sees it all, and so he sees, he's aware of everything on this. Job 28, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees, here it is, everything under the heavens. But more specifically, Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
So the God who is aware of everything in the universe knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many fell out of my head today. Like he knows all of these type of things. He knows every bird in the sky. He knows every bird that falls. He knows every baby bird sitting in a nest somewhere. And if you think about what we've seen in Genesis, there's a picture right there of one of the nebula in our galaxy. That's one of 20,000 in our galaxy, these nebulae. These are gas explosions. He knows exactly how much gas, the volume of gas in that nebula and how much light is going through it and where all the particles are. Like he just knows that. He doesn't have to count it. He just knows that. And so kind of my summary of that, there is not one atom moves anywhere in the universe without his knowledge of it. So if a little tiny gas particle in that net, one of 20,000 nebula moves half an inch, God already knows it moved half an inch, and that didn't overwhelm him to know that because he knows everything fully all the time. Nothing escapes his notice. So he fully knows himself. He fully knows everything in his creation because he spoke it all. It all came into being. But get it more personal. Number three, God fully knows us. And he fully knows other people as well. This is not just, he doesn't just see our actions. He sees deep inside us, friends. How many times has someone asked you, why would you do that? I don't know. Why would you say that? I don't know. I mean, that comes out because we really don't know ourselves fully all the time. We're not good at introspection sometimes. But even if we do, we still come up with dead ends of not sure why we did what we did. God never hits those dead ends. He knows us so fully. He knows us better than we know ourselves that he knows why we do everything that we do. First Chronicles 28. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Notice this. For the Lord searches all hearts, understands every plan and thought. So those thoughts of yours that you don't understand, God understands them. Those things that you don't know why you've done, God does because he searches your heart. He understands your plans and thoughts in ways more fully than you can know yourself. Psalm 139. <clears throat> you know, when I sit down, and when I rise up, this is stunning right here. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. This, again, we read this story, but even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So God knows what you're going to say seven years and three hours from now. Like, as clearly as if it just happened. He fully knows you completely. Or Ezekiel chapter 11. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your minds. Like, even if you don't verbalize it, he already knows. If that thought passed through your mind, if any of those neurons connected and then you had a thought, God knew you had that thought. Even if no one on earth ever knows you had that thought. Now, before we go on that, raise us one of those but wait questions that we throw in here all along the way in this study. If God knows everything... Does he remember our sins? Because you see this in like Isaiah 43 here. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Oh, wait, wait, God doesn't forget anything, right? He's eternal. He sees everything. So how does God not remember our sins? Now, here's the explanation. God not remembering does not mean that God does not know of our sins. He already knew of those sins, friends. That's why Christ went to the cross. When Christ died, he didn't die for sins generally, he bore the wrath against the specific sins you and I as God's people committed. So God was very aware of those sins and God dealt with all those specific sins on the cross when the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. God knows every sinful thought. If no one else in the world ever knows you think it, God knows. He knows every feeling, every word, every action of ours, and he always will. So when it says that God does not remember our sins, that's a human language image for us to show us the beauty of forgiveness. God's aware of those sins he put them on Christ on the cross, and Christ bore them, but it's showing us that he's not going to use them against us because they're all already dealt with on Christ. The, the debt has been paid. The penalty's paid. 
Forgiveness has been granted. So this is a beautiful image when God says, I'm forgetting your sins. The all-knowing God doesn't forget things, but he's saying, I'm never going to use them against you because you stand forgiven. You stand clothed in Christ's righteousness when I look at you. So that's how God's omniscience and the not remembering sins go together. Number four, God fully knows the future. Again, this is incommunicable. I don't know what's going to happen in 30 seconds. You don't either, but God does. I love how A.W. Pink describes it. God's knowledge of the future is as complete as is his knowledge of the past and the present, that because the future depends entirely upon himself, or in any way possible for something to occur apart from either the direct agency or the permission of God, then that something would be independent of him, and he would at once cease to be supreme. So everything happens according to God's will. Therefore, he's set the course of the future, he planned the future, and he knows the future as well. We see that all throughout Scripture in the prophecies. I could have done pages of prophecies showing that God knows the future. The prophecies about the Messiah, the prophecies about the end times. God knows everything. But here's just a few that tell us he knows everything. We just looked at this one, but I love this one. So you get it a third time tonight. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Or Isaiah 42, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things that I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And as we see all throughout Scripture, God's saying this is going to happen. Why? Because he knows the future. He's planned the future. I love how Jesus said in Matthew 6, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need. Here's that word before again, before you ask him. We don't go to the Lord in prayer to give God information. He already knows that we go to the Lord in prayer and surrender and trust, asking God to move on our behalf and the behalf of others. Now, number five, this one makes my brain hurt, but this one's fun. So I got to have a lot of self-control. I could do a whole night on this one. I love wrestling with this one, but I'm going to exercise some restraint tonight. God fully knows every possibility. Now, if you want the big term for this, this is called middle knowledge. Now, this is not Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings. That's something totally different. This is middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is the knowledge of all possibilities. And this just takes us to how infinite God is. James Boyce says, he, God, knows all events that could possibly come to pass. This is based upon his infinite knowledge of himself and of all of his creatures. So God just doesn't know the past. He doesn't know the present. He doesn't know the future. He knows how the future will be different if you drove a different way to church tonight. Or if you ate at a different restaurant yesterday and talked to a different server, he knows for all the billions of people on this planet, he knows all the potential contingencies and possibilities. If anyone did any one thing differently, his knowledge is that incredibly vast. Now, we see this in Scripture in different places. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 23 here, when Saul is pursuing King David, then David said, he's asking of God here, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said to David, Yeah, they're going to surrender you. They're going to take over you in this. So what did David do? Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Do you see what happened? David says to the Lord, hey, will we be conquered if we stay here? And God says, yes, you will be. That wasn't a guess on God's part. That was what would happen in these things, because God's knowledge is that vast. He knows all possibilities. So David left, and that thing didn't come to pass. That God said would have happened had they stayed, because God knows how every circumstance would work, because he knows the hearts of every person. He knows all, all potentialities, and so God's knowledge is just that vast. For example, we're in Matthew chapter 11 here. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I tell you, it will be more desirable or more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, if this message had been preached here, they would have repented. But I didn't send the message there. Why? The providence of God, the sovereignty of God. He doesn't answer to us of why things happen. But he knows how people would have handled different situations in different places. Now, just pause on that for a minute. There's 7.8 billion people on the earth. Okay, let your brain turn that one. 7.8 billion people. God knows the thoughts of every single one of them right now. He knows the motivations of every single one of them. He knows how they'd respond in every possible situation. And God knows exactly what would happen if any situation was different right now for any of those 7.8 billion people and how that intertwined with the rest of history. His knowledge is that vast. That doesn't make his brain hurt. He just gets that. He understands that. So God would know what would happen differently if you turned right out of Gateway tonight instead of left. Or if you decide to stop at that gas station instead of that gas station. He knows all potentialities because he knows Everything, not just what happened, but what could happen in any possibility. Just let your brain chew on that one of how vast God's knowledge is. Now turn to page five there. In light of all this closely connected this idea of wisdom, God's knowledge involves his infinite wisdom. And again, I think these are closely linked in God's attributes. So what do we mean by wisdom in general? Well, it's not just knowledge, right? You've all met people who have a lot of knowledge they're really stupid, aren't they? They're not very, they're not very wise in terms of life. You, you know, I spent years living in Auburn, and I love, I love that town. There was a great place. But there's so many people with PhDs who really were stupid on life issues, right? I don't mean that mean, but like they had all this intellect. They didn't have the, the foggiest idea how to live it out or apply wisdom to life. Having a PhD doesn't make you wise. Or you all know smart people who are incredibly unwise. So it's not just knowledge. So what is it then? Wisdom is, these are two different definitions from people, not necessarily a believer's perspective, just what is wisdom? It's a knowledge of what is true and right, coupled with true and right actions. So wisdom is right thinking that leads to right actions, right? <coughs> or excuse me, is choosing the best end and the best means to reach that end. So wisdom is life application, right? It's living out truth in our lives. So we talk about God's wisdom being tied to his knowledge, what do we mean by this? I love how Wayne Grudem says it. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always will bring about the best results. It's important from God's ultimate perspective. <clears throat> they will bring about those results through the best possible means. So when we look at things and we go, I don't understand why God did that. We don't have to. We don't have ultimate wisdom, but God does. God always is choosing the right thing and the right means from his ultimate perspective. James Boyce describes it this way. Wisdom in God is infinite and unerring, choosing always the best end and the best means of attaining it. It is seen in creation and in providence, but is most significantly manifested in redemption. So God is wise. He's infinite. He's unerring. He always does what is best and what is right. So how do we know that God is, God is wise? Two ways. Number one, he's told us he's wise. And this is not something we deduce. We have to reason God has told us he is wise. Job 12, here's from Job again. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Or if we go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. What a great series of descriptions to show us how infinitely wise 
God is. In Romans chapter 16, verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is just amazing. The foolishness of God, which Paul's right there, God doesn't have any foolishness. This is a comparison for us. But if there were foolishness in God, which there's not, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, and there is no weakness in God, but if there were, the weakness of God would be stronger than men. This is an imagery for us. God's not weak in any way. He's not foolish in any way, but if there was, that would be stronger than or wiser than <coughs> the wisest person on earth. So God has told us he is wise, but number two, God has demonstrated he is wise. So we see him say, I'm wise, but you look at redemption history, world history, you see the wisdom of God. Now, there's many things that point to the wisdom of God. Let me give you just three. Number one is creation. We've been thinking about this a lot in Genesis lately, and I've been pondering this a lot. You see the incredible wisdom of God in creation. So if our earth was a million miles closer to the sun, we would burn up and melt and we couldn't have life. If we didn't have the axis tilt that we would have, we wouldn't have seasons. If we didn't have the right gas balance in the air, we would suffocate. If we didn't have trees to convert the carbon dioxide to oxygen, we would all die off. Like you see this perfect world in the wisdom of God and making something so intertwined that only a God could come up with. Proverbs 3, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding he established the heavens. That's what you see when you look at how the stars give navigation for us and you look at the seasons and all the beauty of what God made. You see his wisdom in that. Or Jeremiah 10, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Friends, our world demonstrates the wisdom of God as perfectly designed by God to glorify himself and to sustain human life. So if we're ever wondering when we're in the midst of those trials and hardships, God, are you really wise? Go out and look at the stars one night. Watch the sunrise and the sunset. Look at the, how intertwined his creation is and let creation remind you of the wisdom of God. But we also see the wisdom of God in redemption. Now, you've heard me share this quote many times before, but I love this one from John Piper. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Who but an incredibly wise God could come up with that? What other plan could be devised to where God's holiness is not compromised, where his love is on display, but his hatred of sin is on display, and we see his glory in all this? How, who could have devised such a plan? Only a perfectly wise God could come up with that. And that's what we see Paul's writing to the people in Ephesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight. God found a way to do what anyone else would have said was impossible, to redeem, just to redeem sinners to himself. You see his wisdom in coming up with a plan of redemption. But third, you see his wisdom in the church. How does God display his wisdom to a watching world? How does God display his wisdom to the angels and the demons who are watching? He does so through, excuse me, through the church. Ephesians 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, there's pause there. Unsearchable riches of Christ. Like, we're going to be pursuing knowledge of God and wisdom for all eternity. I mean, he's so unsearchable. And to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, don't miss this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. To who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. To the unseen spiritual realm, God is demonstrating his wisdom. So the angels and demons watching on are seeing the wisdom of God on full display in the church. I love how Grudem describes it. This means that God's wisdom is shown even to angels and demons, the principalities and powers, 
when people from different racial and cultural backgrounds are united in Christ and the church. If the Christian church is faithful to God's wise plan, it will be always in the forefront in breaking down racial and social barriers in societies around the world and will thus be a visible manifestation of God's amazingly wise plan to bring great unity out of great diversity and thereby to cause all creation to honor him. So when we are the church, this is showing the wisdom of God because who could bring people of different ages, different races, different ethnicities, different personalities, different interests, different socioeconomic statuses, all to one place united in Christ. It shows the wisdom of God to do what humans themselves could not do. And there's so much more we can say, but three ways that we see the wisdom of God. He tells us he's wise and he's, we see his wisdom in the church and redemption and in creation. So friends, when life is hard and you're going, where is God? Where's the wisdom of God on display? Look at the church. Ponder your salvation. Go look at creation and see it. This leads us to our other but wait moment for tonight. If God is wise, God is all knowing, why is my life so hard sometimes? This is a hard question for people, especially in our culture. If God is wise, why does he allow trials into my life? Now, remember back to one of our definitions of God's wisdom from the beginning. God always will bring about the best results, but notice that important parentheses, from God's ultimate perspective. God knows things we do not know. God knows our future, and God knows the future of all the people around us. So God can put together a plan that may not make sense to us right now, But he knows everything, and so he can put together a plan that may not make sense to us, but that is accomplishing things that we don't even fully understand. We have such a limited temporal perspective, but God sees the big picture of everything. So why is life hard? Because God has different goals for us than we have for ourselves. What is God's goal for us? Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who was called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The chief end of our life is not our happiness and ease and affluence, The chief end of our life is the glory of God. Now, what most glorifies God? Romans 8.20. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God's ultimate goal for me and for you is not to get from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible, right? His goal is for me to glorify him, for you to glorify him by becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more Christ-like. And what does God redeem and use to make us more Christ-like? James 1, you know that the testing of your faith produces in steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect so you can be complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God's goal is not affluence, ease, no sickness, no trials. God's goal is his glory. He accomplishes glory by conforming us to Christ. How does he conform us to Christ? Yes, through the word. Yes, through community. Yes, through prayer. But yes, through trials as well. I love how J.I. Packer describes it. He says, here many go wrong, Misunderstanding what the Bible means when it says that God is love. They think that God intends a trouble-free life for all. But this idea of God's intention is a complete mistake. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keeping a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Just pause that and think of that again. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has he promised a trouble-free life. Rather, the reverse He has the other ends in view for life in this world and simply to make it easy for everyone. What is he after then? What is his goal? What does he aim at? When he made us, his purpose was that we should love and honor him, praising him for the wonderfully ordered complexity and variety of his world, using it according to his will and so enjoying both it and him. And this leads Packer to conclude there. We may be frankly bewildered at things that happen to us, but God, God knows exactly what he is doing and what he's after in his handling of our affairs. 
Friends, we may be bewildered at times. All of us will be. But God is wise. God is all-knowing, and he is working things that we do not understand. He alone has wisdom. Now, that leads to the last part of tonight. We saw his knowledge, his his all-knowing is incommunicable. We'll never be that. But he is wise, and he's called us to pursue wisdom. Wisdom is a communicable attribute. So what is wisdom for us? Of how James Boyce said it, wisdom is that power which enables one to put to practical use the knowledge and skill which he possesses to choose wise ends of action and to attain these ends by wise means. Very similar to what we saw earlier. A.W. Tozer, I love this one. Wisdom is the ability to see the end from the beginning, to see everything in proper relation and in full focus. It's to judge and view of final and ultimate ends and to work towards those ends with flawless precision. So wisdom is just part of God's nature. God is just wise. We are not just by our nature wise, right? God doesn't have to pursue wisdom. He's fully wise all the time. But we are called to pursue wisdom, to grow in wisdom. It's communicable. We're not by default wise, but we can grow in this, in this communicable attribute of God. So how do we gain wisdom? God doesn't have to gain wisdom. He already is perfectly wise. But how do we gain wisdom? Several thoughts. Number one, we need to realize wisdom is a gift from God. Ultimately, if we are going to be wise and grow in this communicable attribute of God, God has to give it to us. Daniel 2, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. So if there's any growth in wisdom, it is the grace of God. And if a lost person grows in wisdom, it's the common grace of God that he has put out in the world. Wisdom is a gift from God, not something we devise ourselves. But if we want to grow in this communicable attribute, if we want to grow in being wise, what do we do? Second of all, we pursue knowing and loving God. Friends, we pursue God not to get stuff. We don't go to God because I want to be wise, so I guess I'll put up with God because I want wisdom. We don't use God for our own purposes and ends. So if we really want to be wise, our focus is pursuing and knowing and loving God for who he is. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. If when you see this in Proverbs as well, if we want to be wise... The starting point is we want to know God. We don't just want to use God to get wisdom so we can get successful in life. We want to just know God. So if we want wisdom, it's a gift from God. We pursue God himself. But number three, we need to ask for it. We need to ask for wisdom for ourselves and for others. If it's a gift from God, then we depend on him, and so we depend on him in prayer. James 1, I love this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This should be all of our regular prayer. God, I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. This is a beautiful promise of Scripture we can memorize and cling to. That God has promised to give to us wisdom when we ask him to. But it's a great thing to pray for others we love as well. Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So what did Paul pray for them? Asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wanted them to have God-given wisdom. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I wonder how often we're praying for those ends and skipping that wisdom part of that prayer at the beginning, that we pray for spiritualism, we pray for understanding, so the fruit of knowing God is produced from that. So we want wisdom. We know it comes from God. We pursue knowing God himself. We ask for it. Number four, we study scripture with a longing to obey. We want to be wise people. God has already spoken to us here, and he will never contradict his word. So we run to his word with a longing to obey it. How often have I met people and counseled people and in my own heart done this, where I'm going, Lord, I need you to give me wisdom, and I'm not paying any attention to this. 
And it's something that God's clearly spoken about. Like, why am I wanting God to show me something when he's already shown it to me and I'm not paying attention to it? So we go to the word longing to obey. Psalm 119.98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And so that's our key. If we want wisdom, we we study scripture, we pray for it, we pursue knowing God, and we trust that he'll give us that gift. So in light of all that, here's a closing challenge in the pursuit of wisdom. I love this from Rosemary Jensen. I'm praying the attributes of God. Lord, forgive me for relying upon my own wisdom when yours is readily available. Now just pause there, friends. How often have we all done that? God promises to give us wisdom. We don't even ask. We just try to plan our own paths and plan our own ways. Lord, forgive me for relying on my own wisdom when yours is readily available. I have not always sought your guidance. I frequently look to the world for counsel instead of looking to your word. I repent and ask you to help me look only to you for all the wisdom that I will ever need. And what a great prayer in light of that, that we have an invitation from a holy God, the all-wise, all-knowing God, to come to him, and he delights in us being with him. He delights in giving us the wisdom we need when we lack it ourselves. And what a great way to worship him by depending on him for wisdom. So in light of all that, we have some things to talk about tonight. You'll see those on the back of page 8 there. And so as we divide up into our small groups, I hope you'll take time and talk through some of these things. As always, the couples will be in room 1, ladies in room 2, and the men will be down in room 4 by the Coke machine. And so I'm thankful you're here tonight and look forward to hearing some more of the discussions as we wrestle with God's wisdom and knowledge and how that affects us in our daily lives. God bless you all. Have a good night.